Well, I think we've all had a day like that at work at some point before. Um, I don't know why I'm kicking an inanimate object, but I am. Um, you know, work is technically a four-letter word in the dictionary, but I think for many of us, when we think about work, it is a four-letter word metaphorically as well. Get my clicker to work and join us in the new year. There we go. Um, and so I, I think there's a lot of us that when we hear the word work, we feel a wide range of emotions. And, and maybe those emotions are because, you know, you watched a parent uh, who had a negative view of work. Maybe it's because you're in the middle of working at a job that you hate. Maybe it's because you're excited that you don't go to work anymore. Uh, maybe it's because you've been on break for two weeks and you're dreading going back to work tomorrow. Uh, but work takes up a huge portion of our lives. One study did a conservative estimate and they found that we spend over 100,000 hours in our lives at work. It's over 12 years of our lives. It's a massive period and that was a conservative estimate. And, and for many of us, that experience isn't a great experience. The Gallup organization has been studying work and how we work for a long time. And their most recent study found that 70% of us are disengaged at work. We're there, but we're not really there. We're there in body, but we're not there mentally and in spirit. And because work is such a huge part of our lives, I think it's a really important topic to talk about. And I think for many of us, it's a topic that, that we, uh, we have been discipled and influenced by our culture on much more than we have by our faith. I think for many of us, our view of work is, how do I get by with as little work as possible? For some of us, our, our view of work is that it, it defines our identity. People come up to us, hi, what's your name? And you tell them, what do you do is the next question. We, we define ourselves by our identity. And then for some of us, our view of work is it's that period of my life where I don't get to do what I want to do. And I'm waiting for that period of my life where I do get to do what I want to do in retirement. And most of those views are, are primarily influenced by our culture. They're new views, actually, if you look at the history of the world. And they're not really rooted in scripture. I know who I'm speaking to, and I know where I'm speaking at, and I know this may offend some of you, but the modern view in America of work and the modern view in America of retirement are unfindable in this book. You can't find them. That may make you uncomfortable. It may frustrate you. That's part of the reason that I want to have this topic. Somebody said, Scott, why are you doing a series on work when half of your audience doesn't work anymore? <laughs> and here's why. I'm not a dummy. I, I, I can see. It's because there's a massive chasm in our world and in the church between faith and work. And for many of us, the way that we work and our view of work is massively disconnected from our faith. Our faith is what happens on Sunday, or our faith is what happens privately when we're alone, but our faith is not infused with our work. And most of us don't know what the Bible actually says about work. And because of that, we live in light of what our culture says about work, or our family taught us about work, or what uh, our friends think about work, not what the Bible says about work. 
and I think there's some really exciting and surprising things that you're going to find in this series. I think it's going to challenge some of you. And I would encourage you that even if you think this series isn't for you, don't check out. Because maybe, just maybe, the restlessness that you feel and the struggle that you have with trying to figure out what your purpose is, is because you've been living according to what our culture says about work, not what God says about work. And maybe, just maybe, you'll give me 30 minutes today to help you see what I found. So over the next three weeks, we're going to start this you're out with talking about faith at work. Today, I'm going to kind of lay the foundation. Um, and so I'm going to kind of give you a lot of info today. Next, we're going to talk about how work goes wrong and where things go bad at work. And then three weeks, two weeks from now, the third week, we'll talk about how work makes a difference in our world and in eternity. So if you have your handout, I'd encourage you to follow along in this message. And uh, here's the big idea. The surprising thing is that our work matters to God more than it matters to us. Surprising truth that we find in the Bible is that our work matters to God more than it matters to us. And for some of us, that doesn't take a whole lot because our work isn't that important to us. But for some of us who have made our identities and our lives all about work, even for you, your work matters to God more than it matters to you. Today, what I want to do is share seven foundational principles that the Bible gives us about work. And, and, and one of the things you need to know is when I use the word work, in your head you may think job, career, paycheck, corporation, and, and the Bible's definition of work is so much more broad than that. And the first principle is this, that God is a worker and he made work for his creation. Now there's a lot of ways we can describe God, and I'm not sure a lot of us would really think about worker as a description of God. But from the very beginning of the Bible, we see that part of God's identity is one who works. In the book of Genesis chapter 2, we read, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So before we are even introduced into the scene, humanity, we see that God is working. The passage continues later on in in verse 215. It says, the Lord took the man and he put him in the garden to do what? To work the garden and to keep the garden. So, So God himself is a worker. And when he creates humanity, the very first thing he gives humanity to do is work. Now, there's no paycheck involved. There's no W-2. There's no direct deposit. There's no quarterly reviews or TPS reports or copy machines or, or you know, uh, check-in meetings. There's no management structure. There's none of that that we all associate with work. But in the scriptures from the very beginning, we see that God himself is a worker and he gives work for his creation to do. You might say, well, Scott, yeah, but doesn't God rest at the end of the seventh day? I mean, isn't he done with his work? No. Jesus even mentions this in John 5. says, this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them saying, my father is working until now and I am working too. So Jesus, who was perfect as a human, even he worked. And long after creation ended on the seventh day, God himself continues to work because he is a worker. That's the first foundational principle. Number two, Work is good. 
coming before our sin. Again, biblically speaking, work is good. We'll cover this next week, but work may be cursed because of sin, but work isn't a curse. God created work and he called it good. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, which means to rule, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So in the beginning, when God creates us, what does he do? He gives us a job to do. He gives us responsibilities. He gives us work. This is before we ate any fruit. This is before there was a fall. Just a few verses later in verse 31, and it says, God saw everything that he had made, including us and the work he gave us, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is really important. Because for many of us, our view of work is that work is part of the brokenness and the sin in the world. And so if God could just make the world right, then work would go away. If if you believe in the Bible, you can't hold that view. Because the Bible describes work as coming to us from God in the season in which everything was very good. And while none of us have had a day in our lives where our work, whatever it was, whether it was cleaning our house, taking care of our kids, caring for a parent, or going to a job, where that work wasn't affected by the fall and sin, that work was given to us by God, and he intended it for good. That's why Jeff Henderson says that you'll never understand your purpose at work until you understand the purpose of work. And for many of us, we feel in a struggle to find out what our purpose is in life, and we struggle at work because we haven't understood God's purposes for our work. Third principle, that we get to labor and create like God. We get to. One of the things I've tried to do over the last few years is to rid my vocabulary of two words, have to. I'd encourage you this week, somebody that you know, that you're close to, maybe you live with, maybe you're friends with, maybe you work with, just encourage each other to point out when each other uses the words have to. And you'll be surprised by this audit of your vocabulary. For many of us, the word have to drops out of our mouth all the time. And we we use it to describe things that, that sound like obligations, but are things we actually love. Like I'll say, well, you know, I have to go to my kids from school. Have to? Uh, you know, I have to go on a date with my wife. Have to? I have to preach a sermon. I have to? No, no, no. I, I, I get to. It's a privilege. We see here, again, in Ephesians 2.10, where the Apostle Paul writes, For we are his, speaking of God's, workmanship. The, the Greek word that's translated workmanship is, is the word poema, which means the crowning achievement of an artist, his best work. For we are God's crowning achievement, his greatest work, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are the work of God. We're actually God's best work. Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Michelangelo's David, the Mona Lisa, 
whatever your favorite artist is, their best work, their best movie, their best song, their best poem, you are that of God's. And you were created by God to do good works. And so therefore you get to do those things. It's a privilege. Irma McManus describing this verse says that we are both works of art and artists at work. You might say, Scott, I am not artistic. That's okay. But you are an artist and your art is your life. And you were created by God as a work of art and he's given you art to create. He's given you work to do and you get to do it. There are people here today that might not be here a year from now. There were people in this room the first Sunday of 2019 that aren't here in the first Sunday of 2020. I I had a friend who was with me every Sunday for 13 years. And he's not here anymore. He passed away yesterday. He no longer gets to do the work that I get to do. And so you might say, well, I have to go to work tomorrow or I have to do this. No, no, you get to. And there's people who wish they could do what you get to do. You get to labor and create us. It's the gift that God's given you. Number four, I got to keep going. God uses our work to form us into the image of Jesus. God actually uses our work as a tool for his purposes to make us more like his son, Jesus. The apostle Paul in his letter to the church of Colossians, to the Colossian church, says, him we proclaim Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. That word mature means whole. It means complete. It's the Greek word telos. And it's this idea that Paul's work, the work that we are doing here in the church, is to see everyone become fully a picture of Jesus Christ. Paul continues, he says, for this I toil, working hard, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, my job, the thing that I am literally laboring and toiling in is that you would become the image of Jesus. And what's interesting is that if our lives are spent abundantly next to sleeping more than anything else at work, then God is going to use that work to make us like Jesus. That's part of the reason why he gave Adam and Eve the responsibility of tending the garden, because it was going to be their way of expressing their imageness of God. Sorry, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, we were created in the image of God, who was a creator. Everything you see and experience is a reflection of the imagination and the creativity of God. And he created this world and gave us the responsibility of tending it and caring for it. And he intends for our work to be the thing that he uses to make us like him. This is why it's such a tragedy that so many of us go to work having no idea how God is using our work. Because we're missing out on hours and hours and hours and opportunity after opportunity for God to use the work we're doing to make us like Jesus. If you only give God one hour of your week every week for him to form you into the image of his son, God's work is going to go very slowly. 
because you watch more cable news than you attend church. And you go to work, many of you, more than you watch cable news. And sadly, many of us are being discipled more by our jobs and our cultures and the news cycle and social media than we are by God. When in actuality, he wants to work through our work to make us more like Jesus. Number five, fifth principle. There is no hierarchy of value in God's economy. There is no hierarchy of value in God's economy. In the church, there is this myth that there is a hierarchy of value. There is pastors, missionaries above them, and then there's everybody else. And just because a view is popular and and widely held doesn't mean it's true. See, in the scriptures, back in the verse we read earlier, Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took the man... And put him in the garden to what? To work it and to keep it. That word that we see there in English as work comes from the Hebrew word. And it's the Hebrew word abad. And it's often used to describe service to God. Not just work, but work that is a service to God. The other word in that passage is that we were called to work it and to keep it. The word keep it comes from the word shamar in Hebrew, which means to keep as in keep his commandments. So when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he calls them to work the garden and keep the garden, they aren't just taking care of the garden, they are exercising a spiritual act. Their work is spiritual. It isn't just physical. And from the very beginning, manual labor is dignified by God as a spiritual act. And so many of us grew up in a culture where work for the church or missionary work was more holy or more spiritual than manual labor. And so people who went to jobs in manual labor or in secular environments felt bad because they weren't really doing the work of God like pastors and missionaries were. And on behalf of all the pastors in the world, I'm sorry. If you ever taught that lie, because it's a lie, there's no hierarchy of value in God's economy. If the work from the beginning is spiritual work, manual labor, tending the gardens, then there is no hierarchy between people who, quote, go into ministry and people who go to work on Monday. That's a man-made thing. And this is why I think so many of us struggle with our work is we go, man, I, I wish I could get to the point in my life where I could just do that kind of really spiritual work because right now I have to send bills or teach students or install software or pull cable or frame a house. And so many of us see that work as not spiritual or not as spiritual as other work. And we feel like as a result, our value is somehow diminished in the economy of God and nothing could be further from the truth. Now, yes, in the church, God has given different gifts and he's put people in different roles, but my role is not more important or valuable to God than yours. And I am just as important to God as you. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It took the same amount of blood from Jesus to forgive my sin as it did yours. And God doesn't love me more because of the work he's called me to than he does you because of the work he's called you to. 
And if you've adopted that view and it came from somebody in a role like mine, I'm sorry. But they were wrong. There is no hierarchy of value in God's economy. Number six, work is an opportunity to love God and to love people. Work is an opportunity. When Jesus is asked, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important thing? Many of us know what he says in Matthew 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and with your soul and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And when you go to work tomorrow, if you go to a job, or you go home today to do the work that you're doing that you don't get paid for, and that you're not appreciated for, and that there's no, you know, taxes to be paid for, you're welcome. (laughs) You have an opportunity to do two things. To love God through that work, and to love people through that work. Which is the essence of everything God has called you to do in this life. And work may be an environment where it is hard to love people. Just because it's the most important commandment doesn't mean it's the easiest commandment. It's hard to love people, especially at work. Because for some of you, the people that you work with, oh my gosh, they're hard to love. Some people that you do work for don't appreciate it. Or treat you as if you're not worthy of respect or dignity. And some of you, the work that you're doing that doesn't have a title or a W-2 attached to it, the person that you're working for will never be able to communicate their gratitude. If you're a parent, you know this. You're never going to get enough thank you notes for what you do as a parent. Mother's Day could happen every day and you still wouldn't get enough. Some of you are caring for an elderly parent. And they are physically and mentally unable to thank you and appreciate you. And they are really hard to love. And guess what? They're going to get harder to love the older they get. But that's why your work is an opportunity for God to make you like Jesus. Because it's in that struggle that your love for them and your love for him changes you. You go, Scott, that is a bizarre way to look at the world. That's why Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush a fire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. Your work, wherever it's done, that workplace, is holy ground. Some of you grew up calling the place you went to church the sanctuary. And it was easy for you to see that space as holy. Well, guess what? I want to challenge you that wherever you go to do work, that's a sanctuary. That's a holy place. Because you're there. And if you're a follower of Jesus, God is there in you and with you. You work on holy ground. And your workplace is an opportunity to worship God. To love God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength and to love the people there who will never come in these doors. But guess what? Tomorrow they're stuck next to you and you can love them in his name. Final principle, number seven. We don't outgrow work and there's work for us in eternity. This is why it's so important that you don't think work and think job that you only have for a certain number of years. 
We don't outgrow work, and there's work for us in eternity. In Revelation 14, it says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Revelation, if you don't know, and it's not called Revelation, it's singular. There was one Revelation. Revelation. In Revelation, we see a picture of the end. John the Apostle, one of the followers of Jesus, had a vision of the end, and he wrote it down. And in Revelation 14, we have this verse, in verse 13, that is often used to go, hey, guess what? When I die and go to heaven, I'm done working. Because here it says that they may rest from their labors, which we think job. But again, the Bible isn't written in English. Revelation was written in Greek. And that word for labors is not the word for your nine to five. It is the word to describe the weight and the burden you carry. The grief and the angst and the burden. Now you may feel that because of your work, but that labor isn't your work. And the promise of revelation is that when we finally find our rest in God on the other side of death, we will have rest from that burden, that grief, that pain, that anxiety. Why? Because that is from this fallen world. And we are no longer within that fallen world. If you go to the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation 22, John says, no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants, same word can be translated, his workers, will worship him. Verse 5 says, And night will be no more. There'll be no need of light, of lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign. Same word that's used in Genesis to have dominion. They will reign or rule forever and ever. When we go to heaven, We will have work, but it won't at all resemble the way that we know work now. Some of you have a terrible boss, just a terrible boss. Some of you have had a terrible boss before. Some of your spouses know how terrible your boss is because you come home every day and talk about your boss. When we get to heaven, you're going to have the best boss. And the work that you do will be to worship him and to reign and rule with him. Now, I don't know all that includes. John got the revelation. I didn't. But biblically speaking, we don't outgrow work. And there we work for us in eternity. And the problem is, for some of us, that's bad news. Man, I I thought I got done with that. I retired. I don't want to go back to work. I already quit that. I meet so many of you who've moved to Prescott to retire and you feel aimless. You feel purposeless. You wonder why you're still here. Maybe, just maybe, that's because you left behind what God created and intended you for to bring that meaning and value to your life. When I first started here, there was a man who was leaving the work that he was doing that he was doing after he left his job. And he came to me for counsel. And I did my best to try to listen to him and ask him some questions. And then a few weeks later, he came back and said, hey, I went back to that work. 
It's a volunteer job. He doesn't get paid for it. He said, because what you helped me to see was that's the work God's given me to do, and that's what my purpose is right now. And I have to tell you, I now get up with a reason to be up because I go to do that work. I can't imagine being at the end of my career because I'm just the beginning of it. I've never lived through my 40s, my 50s, or my 60s. So I don't know what it's like to go through a, a years and years and decades and decades of having a career and being excited to leave that drama behind. But I just have a, a guess as somebody who's pastored people in that period for 15 years that some of the things you want the most got thrown out with the bathwater when you adopted our culture's view of work. And if God is a worker and he created us in his image, and he's given us work to do, then maybe it's time we begin to understand the purpose of work and then understand our purpose in work. And I have to tell you, I'm excited that my work is going to change in heaven because the business I'm in is going to close. I'm going to have work in heaven, but it's not going to look like here. I'm not going to get a call that somebody's getting divorced. I'm not going to get a call that a family is at odds. I'm not going to get a call that somebody has cancer. I'm not going to get a call that somebody has died. And I get to be done with giving sermons. Because the best sermon giver is way better than me. And I long for that moment in heaven. And I'm excited for the new work he's going to give me. And I know this is really uncomfortable for a lot of you. And that's okay. I want to give you some thoughts to process with me. The first one is this. God has given me work to do. I mean, you wrestle with that because you don't agree with it yet. But that's the first thought. And there's a question attached to each of these. If God has given me work to do, then what's that work right now? And I just want to push you that maybe that phrase work is one that you need to redefine, not as the place you go to get that paycheck, but that, that calling or that labor that God has given you to do, that person to care for, that thing to be responsible over. What's the work God's given you to do right now? Number two, God wants to make me like him through my work. I'm convinced of this, that God uses our work as a tool to form us in his image. And if that's the case, the question is, where is that happening right now? All of us are in the process of being redeemed from a broken person to being made whole in Christ. And I believe God uses our work and there's an edge where God's changing you and, and shaping you through your work. So where's that edge? Where's it happening? For me, it's saying things I'm afraid to say. And today was a chance to do that. Because I knew some of you were coming going, why is he preaching a sermon on work in Prescott? Now you know. <laughs> and then number three, I can love God and love people through my work. And the question is, so who is that person that I'm loving through my work? And what does it look like to love God through my work? Now what we're going to do into these messages is we're going to make it really real. And I'm going to bring somebody out to interview them about their work. And so I want to invite my wife out right now. And I'm going to talk to her for a few minutes. So give her a round of applause. 
So uh, I get about one time to invite my wife out a year where she'll come out here and talk to me because I'm the extrovert and she's not. Um, and apparently I blew my shot last year. I, I guess it doesn't roll over in the next year. So I figured I'd just get it out of the way now. So you're, you're free the rest of the year. Yes, I am. Try it now. Okay, there, there we go. go. There we go. So, um, so Danny, why don't you tell us a little bit about the work you do and how long you've been doing it for? I um, have been an attorney since 2005. I was licensed in October of 2005. Um, I spent a year doing insurance, defense, and personal injury until my boss died in a plane crash. And um, then I fell into prosecution. In 2007, in February, I started as a prosecutor in Maricopa County. And... I never looked back. Um, I spent five years prosecuting domestic violence and child abuse cases um, while I was there, among other things. Um, and then when I moved here, I did a bunch of just general stuff. And for the last two, almost two years now, I've been uh, the, one of the two juvenile prosecutors for the county. So um, I think people, when they think about faith and work, they don't think lawyer in that context. No. Um, and uh, there, there's a very vivid memory, memory I have. I was actually interviewing for a job at a church, not this church. And the interview board asked that, uh, we, we hadn't had kids yet, and they asked if, uh, if you were going to stop working once we had kids. And I can remember describing to them that you felt called to law. And they all gave me that blank, dumb look, um, like, what are you, like I was from a foreign planet or something. Um, but you, you use the word calling to describe your work the same way I use the word calling to describe my work. Why do you do that? Well, it actually, um, it started in law school, but it started before that. See, I, I have had the view my entire life that every job matters. Um, I did roofing with my dad as a teenager. I was a commercial landscaper before I went to law school. Um, I was a nanny while I was in college. I cleaned dorms during the summer after everybody left school um, as a job when I was in college. Um, I worked in the law library and law school, so I think every job matters. And when I was in law school, the, the part of the motto for our law school was being a lawyer is not a job, it's a calling. And I think my professors actually helped us figure that out. Um, I had one professor in particular who um, he would start almost every class either reciting, um, I wrote it down because I had to look it up, Psalm 19, 14. Um, and it's the, the verse that says, may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And that's how he would start class every time. Or he would uh, recite part of Psalm 51. Um, and he would talk about, he was a, <laughs> he was a really high profile attorney who did a lot of contract litigation and was very sought after, but he was a very humble man. And um, he didn't find Jesus until after he was an attorney because of the janitor at his firm. So he, he talked to us about how he came to faith and that in his view was every job matters. He said, my job matters, he said, but everybody else's job matters too. And... Um, I, Scott and I joke that I'm the justice, he's the mercy in the relationship. I was, I was born with a very strong sense of justice. And um, I've always believed that, and I've always felt like there was always something for me out there. And I had actually, Scott talks about that experience. I had an experience when I was a senior in high school, when I was graduating, 
where my, um, they were talking, they were telling everybody what all everybody's goals were as they graduated, and my goal has always been to be an attorney. I didn't know what I was going to do, and I had, they said, Danilin's going to, wants to be an attorney, and then the person on stage said, well, isn't that an oxymoron, an attorney who's a Christian? And everybody laughed. And I didn't think it was funny. And it it hurt my heart because I, belie- I believed, as a senior in high school, that was exactly what I was supposed to be doing. I just didn't know exactly what. And then I fell into prosecution, and then I, over the last couple of years, I kind of fell into juvenile prosecution and um, have realized that somebody's got to care about the kids. And despite being a prosecutor, I care, I joke that I parent about 200 other kids besides my own three every day in Yavapai County. Um, so it's probably a good chance, to, and I think this is where you're headed, but because for some people, they don't see that connection. Mm-hmm. How do you see, when you go to work, how do you see your faith influencing that and impacting that? How do you live out your faith at work? Um, I recognize the image of God in each of the kids that I see. Um, no matter what they've done, and kids do the exact same things the adults do, except that they're kids. And um, I see them as humans, and I don't. And I try try to see them every single child as a human, um, despite what they may have done, because they've been failed by a system or failed by a family, or they just made a stupid decision. Um, juvenile is juvenile court is about rehabilitation, and um, and I resonate with that because I spend a lot of time trying learning that even in adult court, those people are humans, and for a long time they were just a number to me. They weren't. They were a case number. They weren't a person. And I have a lot of defense attorney friends that help me see the humanity in each of the people that I prosecute. Because if I can't see the humanity in those people, then I deny their humanity. I deny my own humanity. And I deny the fact that they're an image of God and that they're a created person and that they're, that they're a human and that they're beautiful. So uh, is there a particular story that embodies um, how you live out your faith at work? That's probably my last question. Um, no? Not really, no. Uh, well, there, there's one story I thought of, that there was a, a guy that we met um, that hadn't seen you in court, but had seen somebody like you. And when he figured out that I was married to a prosecutor, he kind of didn't want to stop coming to the church because he was afraid of you. Um, uh, and to be honest, I mean, I'm afraid of her. Um, <laughs> but he shared with you a really interesting story, if you remember Ken's story, that when he was in court, because uh, he was a, um, a convicted felon, um, that the attorney had spoken some words, and he could recite them verbatim, that he had spoken over them. And uh, do you remember this? No. Okay. And he, he I remember it. Um, and he, he said um, to you, he said, you have no idea the power that your words have in that moment as a prosecutor. He said, the, the defendant may not feel like he's, he or she is listening, but they are. And they're listening to the words you say. And on multiple occasions, I know that you've labored over the words you say in that moment. And so I am proud to be a pastor who's married to a prosecutor, which everybody always thinks is super weird, but it's because I know that you go to work and you live out your faith. 
and you take your words seriously um, and you don't speak them haphazardly. Um, I try to speak hope into the lives of the kids, even if they're not listening. I'm hoping that at some point that they hear it. That's awesome. So our hope is that in this series that we can have some honest conversations about work, even though we're in all, all different places, and to help you uh, connect what happens here on Sunday to what happens on Monday. So thanks for coming out and sharing. Sure. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.